Alive. Hello and welcome back to another Let's See You Look As Good As Mads After Getting Pummeled With A Baseball Bat episode of the First Time Watchers Podcast. Because we like to watch. My name is Tim Costa. I'm Hermano De Silva. This is Walter Minji. And joining us tonight, our semi-regular contributor, the man who has no problem at all performing in front of sex workers from Criterion Cast, Mark Herney. Welcome back to the show, Mark. Wow, I'm glad my... Uh... My reputation has gotten around, thanks to him. Oh, it gets around, that. all right, Mark. It gets around. <laughs> uh, what's the latest Criterion cast? Oh, always good stuff. There's uh, some recent podcasts. Our good friend David Blakesley just covered episode 120 in Criterion Reflections, The Blob. And the episode 119 was Shaft, or I should say Shaft's big score. Hmm. Um, and, of course, as always, uh, friend... Aaron West and Jill Blake are on Criterion now talking about the most recent announcements for July. Um, so lots of good stuff coming up, and uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit later about some of the new stuff that uh, people might want to check out. Excellent, excellent. Always good to have you on board. And if Thank you'd like you. to send feedback, you can always email us at firsttimewatchers at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll be discussing the second film in Nicholas Winding Refn's trilogy, Pusher Two. But before we get into that, it is time for Yay or Nay. This is the part of the show where we discuss what we have seen recently on our own. Mark. Yeah, I I, I think uh, the last few times I've been on, I've actually talked about something, uh, a, a bit of a theme first, a film from maybe the 70s or especially the 80s that I missed out on and recently caught up with. And that's uh, the first film I want to mention is part of my mini movie book club that we're we're doing. I, I know you've done something like this too, Tim. Mm. And in 2022, we're doing a little bit of a director marathon. So there's four of us. So we each pick a film from a director. Uh, we had a we had a vote. Um, it's really just a a blind director, uh, you know, a filmmaker that we wanted to see more of, either we haven't seen anything or want to see more of. And the votes came down to Ingmar Bergman, who was the <laughs> first uh, first director. So we've done four of his films. Uh, also, John Houston and John Cassavetes are coming up. And we're currently just kicked off the Woody Allen Marathon. Ah. So I had only seen a couple films, I think. Well, I, I'd seen a um, like more recently, Blue Blue Jasmine and, of course, Midnight Paris. But of his big ones, I'd only seen Manhattan and Annie Hall. And so the first film uh, was a great pick for me, Hannah and Her Sisters yes. from 1986. Good movie. It's really I, I was really impressed. Um, I I could see the the influences right away. I mean, he's a big Bergman guy, so it was kind of interesting following up uh, Bergman with a you know a Woody Allen film. There's the, you know, the voiceover. He uses classical music uh, quite a bit like Bergman and Stanley Kubrick did. And uh, also <laughs> a bit of talk of the struggles with God's existence, just like Bergman uh, covered quite a bit. So that was one of his uh, main concerns. So, but, you know, through this film, I laughed quite a bit, um, probably the most I have for a while, because you guys know I usually just, you know, watch depressing films. <laughs> and this one is, it's a really smart, uh, of course, but real comedy, I think. Uh, the voiceovers are funny. They give you an insight into all these characters, so you really get a sense that you know them. Um, and there's some, just some really funny visual gags, like when 
um, the character, I'm forgetting his name now, that Woody Allen plays, is finding, trying to find his place, and uh, he decides to become Catholic, and he, he you know, he pulls out uh, Hellman's mayonnaise, Wonder Bread, and a um, crucifix. And one of my favorite lines uh, is, well, so many favorite, so many good lines, but I'll just mention one, which is um, where his wife at the time, it's a bit of a flashback, um, says that he suffers from excessive masturbation. I mean, he doesn't. <laughs> and so, the, of course, the, uh, the, the follow-up question is, well, are you going to start knocking my hobbies? So, <laughs> yeah, definitely a, a favorite. And he cinema comes into play as well. I mean, he's a, he's a movie guy, Woody Allen, and, um, I won't spoil the film, but it, it's very important, uh, towards the end. Um, and I, I really liked how that, uh, brought things together. So, uh, many awards in this film as well. Um, you've, you've got Michael Caine winning best supporting actor role, Diane West Weist, uh, in a supporting role as well. I mean, they, they were definitely the standouts, um, but the the whole cast is really great. Uh, Alan won for screenplay, written for the screen, and of course it was nominated for picture, director, art direction, and editing. So uh, Hannah and her sisters, if you haven't see it, seen it, uh, really great, and it's playing on uh, Amazon Prime. Nice. The other one I wanted to mention is one that you mentioned last week, Tim. I'm not sure if anyone else has seen it yet, uh, but it is Alex Garland's Men. Uh. His third directed film, uh, first, and, you know, of course, he's done one TV show. I've seen everything but the TV show. Uh, and apparently, I heard this on another podcast. I'll give them a little plug, but on the on the Slash Filmcast, they had a, sorry, it's the Filmcast, not the Slash Filmcast anymore. They had a guest that said that Alex Garland, of course, he started as a writer, uh, but he prefers to direct his films now, not because he likes to direct, but because he has better control of yeah. the material at yeah. that point, so... You know, that's it's interesting. He, you know, he's I guess he, he's introverted. and doesn't really like the the whole showmanship of directing. But, you know, he, he does it. So, yeah, I, I really liked men. I think I actually liked it more than a lot of people. Uh, D plus <laughs> cinema score and critics are barely positive on it overall um, that with the look, the mood and the atmosphere uh, in his films are is always great mm -hmm. and second only to the intellectual exercise that i get with with watching a film of his um that i always do appreciate there's a, a lot of the i mean there's biblical references in this and of course it's the the themes of men i mean it's right there in the title uh are, may seem overt but I, I i just feel like there was a lot to chew on um that um alex garland gives us um, there's a ton of vagina imagery um, <laughs> that, that I think is is, you know, again, not giving anything anything away, but it's it's all over the place. And I, I think it's um, interesting. Uh, you know, you've got this this long tunnel and there are moments when, of course, the the men are in different ways given over to that imagery. So it's 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 just interesting to me how um, I, I think he is trying to come to terms with his maleness and the fact that, you know, men, you know, the male men are 
in a sense, always the same. The lust is always seems to be there. Mark, um, we're the worst. We're the worst, Mark. We are. We are. And men, we, we just have to, women just have to be on their guard uh, at all times. So, but, you know, it's it's certainly still an interesting watch. And I I guess the last thing I'll say is the, the score um, is great once again. And the use of sound in, in the film, um, I... He, he really does a good job. I, I think you've got to see it either in the theater or if you see it at home, make sure you have surround sound um, or, you know, headphones uh, to watch it on. So it's probably, I think you said the same, Tim, it's probably third um, mm-hmm. behind Annihilation being number one and Ex Machina for me, but uh, it could jump up a peg. I still think it's worth uh, watching. Uh, so that's a yay for men. Well, speaking of movies that you should see in the theater, let me take this time to talk about Top Gun Maverick. Um, <laughs> and not just a the theater. I went to go see this at IMAX. True, true IMAX. And uh, and uh, holy shit. <laughs> uh, talk about a movie that deserves the biggest screen and sound you could ever want. Uh, th- this is it, because... Uh, Tom Cruise and Joseph Kaczynski and Christopher McQuarrie and everybody else behind uh, this film put their all into giving you an extremely visceral experience. Um, Look, if you have seen the first movie, that's great. But if you have not seen the first movie, it's still great because they do a hell of a job of catching up on anything that you need to know. Um, there's, is a lot of nostalgia in this movie. Like during the first half, there's so much nostalgia that I had myself thinking, this is kind of cool, you know, uh, but when are we going to get to the good stuff? Uh, and then the second half kicks in and holy cow, that IMAX presentation knocked my fucking socks off. Uh, it, it has superior photography, uh, of the air combat than the first film and f- amazing editing, a top notch sound design that makes you feel like you are in the cockpit with them. Um, you know, it's it's funny that we've seen this last decade or so of Tom Cruise movies uh, commenting on how he is the last of his kind, a relic, you know, an old fogey, and how he's bound and determined to prove everyone uh, that he still has a lot left in the tank. But, you know, he's probably mostly proving it to himself than anybody else. Uh, <laughs> I, and he will go to the ends of the earth to entertain the masses for the sake of cinematic glory. And, um, and there, there's so much to appreciate in this movie, you know, capturing Cruz and, and his co-stars in actual, you know, cockpits and aerial maneuvers is, is you know, when, when you look at it, it's probably more impressive if you take a look at like behind the scenes and making of footage, because it, do, I don't think it makes it's as eyebrow raising as like the practical stunt work in Mission the Mission Impossible films, uh, but it does go a long way to make you believe that there were actual planes flown by actual people and not just a bunch of CGI. Uh, Actually, Tim, there was a lot. A lot of those planes were flown by like yeah. This, the, 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 like specifically Tom Cruise. Well, yes, yes, he did. A, yes, he did a lot of his own flying, but uh, all of the other actors, you know, there were uh, official Navy pilots piloting the jets, and they were in the rear seat. But yeah. they they did a hell of a job of capturing it to make it look believable. It, it, it's it, it it's it's just uh, it, so impressive, so impressive on a technical level. 
uh, and visceral level. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't know how I could watch this in any other format going forward than the IMAX presentation and not be as impressed. Um, I, I was really spoiled. Uh, and, and yes, they do find a way to have Tom Cruise run, and that's just fine by me. Um, <laughs> uh, and I'll just uh, say at the end that shirtless volleyball is still better than shirtless football. Um, even though technically it makes more sense in here as to why they're shirtless football. It makes zero sense why they're shirtless volleyball, but it's still a better scene. Because uh, it's hot, Tim. It's hot, yes. Especially when you play... Metaphorically it, and temperature-wise. Yeah, especially if you play in your jeans, Tom. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, that, that, that's a yay for Top Gun Maverick. Uh, Wally, you're going to have a lot of fun with this one. I, I cannot wait. And then I'm going to watch it on my little tiny phone. <laughs> uh, good job good job uh, Hermano what do you got alright I only watched one thing I finished up a series I started um, kind of a while back I don't know why I, I put it off but I came back to it and I was kicking myself for taking so long to get back to it because I ended up really loving it um, Our Flag Means Death uh, HBO series uh, the, the year is of- you've only seen one episode I've seen the first episode and I loved it. It's basically my friends and I playing Dungeons and Dragons, but I'm watching it. <laughs> I think you would really get a kick out of this show, especially if you've liked like uh, what we do in the shadows and stuff like that. Yep. Um, so I'll read the synopsis. Uh, the year is 1717. Wealthy landowner Steed Bonnet has a midlife crisis and decides to blow up his cushy life to become a pirate. It does not go well, based on a true story. Now, when I read that based on a true story, I'm like, is this one of those like, haha, funny, you know, it's not really based on a true story, but we're going to, you know, make you think it is. But no, apparently it is based on a true story. <laughs> and it makes the show even that much better because surely they took some creative license and just sort of took the kind of uh, baseline story of this real character who lived back in the early 1700s called Steve Bonnet. And apparently he really was like uh, someone who inherited his father's wealth and land uh, after his father died and decided that that wasn't good enough for him and he didn't want to spend his life as like a just a rich guy you know that owned land and just could do whatever he wanted he decided he wanted to be a pirate and rob people <laughs> uh, so the show stars uh reese darby uh, a bunch of other people you might recognize like some character actors probably from like what we do in the shadows and stuff like that but the other big name that's in it is uh taika watiti himself plays black uh blackbeard who apparently the real Steed Bonnet did meet up with Blackbeard and sailed with him, <laughs> uh, robbing other ships in Barbados. So um, crazy to like, you know, read up on the real story of the guy I had never heard of. But uh, the show is really funny. It's it's really right up my alley. I actually laughed out loud a bunch of times. I was a huge fan of Flight of the Concords. Uh, Reese Darby was, um, you know, a, had a part in that, and he'll forever be Murray to me on Fl- Flight of the Concords. But he's amazing in this man. Like. His comedic timing, uh, and it, it, it makes sense, you know, as to why they have such good uh, comedic um, timing with each other. But him and Taika Waititi, like they've worked together so many times that they are so good together, like bouncing off each other and improving. I heard they did some of that, and it's it's so seamless you can hardly tell it's not written. Like it's just amazing. Like the show is so so funny uh, where it goes, and I, I'm a huge huge fan. Like I said, of Reese Darby, I think. He's one of those guys that he's pretty much doing the exact same thing as he did on Flight of the Concords, just kind of playing like a, a big kid, uh, essentially, but doing it so expertly that I rarely do I make this comment because usually someone just doing the same thing over and over just kind of 
I don't know, just kind of gets to me as like kind of like one note. But for whatever reason, he he just can get away with it. I don't know why. He just gets me to laugh, and it's it's all good. So, yeah, I mean, it, I uh, I highly recommend Our Flag Means Death, especially if you like some of the other stuff uh, Taika Waititi's been involved with. Highly recommend uh, that show. Uh, Wally. All right, so I watched uh, I watched Teen Wolf. Wait, I didn't watch Teen Wolf. I watched Turning Red. Oh boy. Uh, a thirteen-year-old girl named Maylin turns into a giant red panda whenever she gets too excited. Directed by Domi Shi. It's fine. I think that the <laughs> the Twitterverse overly hyped this movie to be like the next coming, um, but it's basically Teen Wolf, but with panda bears um, and some magic. I mean, the story I think is really cute. I think it's well acted. I like the I really I really dig the animation style. I also you know kind of dig like this you know the how they approach like the the you know panda transformation and all that where um it's almost like a superpower as opposed to like this like curse that she, that she takes on until like they get to the you know the the third act of the movie overall it's fine it, it's it's a yay it's i mean if you have kids i'm sure they'll dig it and uh that's really that's really all that there's nothing i didn't think there's anything terribly earth-shaking or groundbreaking about it it's it's fine it's good yay Hello, gentlemen. Oh, if it isn't the best-looking baritone in the business. You flatter me. Oh, hi, Mark. Oh, wow. Romano looks like he's back to normal. My name is Steve. What's going on? <laughs> Nothing. Uh, but you know what show is one of the best podcasts in the business? The In Session Film Podcast. That's right, Mark. The In Session Film Podcast is J.D. and Brendan. Are you supposed to say something here, Romano? It's an eldritch temporal disturbance. It shouldn't be a problem much longer. Anyways, each week, the In Session Film Podcast chooses a movie to review. Then creates a top three list based on what they just saw. This week, the In Session Film Podcast goes into the danger zone to review Top Gun Maverick. And continues their Steven Spielberg retrospective to discuss War Horse. You can find their show on Apple Podcasts by searching for, you guessed it, the In Session Film Podcast. Or on the web at InSessionFilm.com. So if you're looking for more great movie reviews and discussion, then check out the In Session Film Podcast on Apple Podcasts. Or on the web at InSessionFilm.com. So what's this about Steve and temporal disturbances and all that? Oh, you know, more of our co-host Insano Science nonsense. Say no more. Woohoo! Would you look at that? It's almost time for the Nexus. Do we want to know? No. No, we don't.
Okay, now it is time for another installment of Mark Herney's Criterion 101. This is where Mark indulges us with his extensive love and knowledge of the Criterion Collection. Mark, is your supply going to get us sufficiently high, or is it just dog food? Uh, well, I have the, the white stuff and the brown stuff. Which would you prefer? Mm, white stuff, please. All right. I can I can do that. Just well, like today... Stuff, <laughs> <laughs> Lord. So, gentlemen, um, I, I, I've got to admit, sometimes it drives me a little crazy when... Uh, when it comes to criterion releases and forums and online, it seems like all all people want to do is to suggest what criterion should release. But that's exactly what we are going to do today. And because we are focused on the films of a little director who might be a first time watcher's favorite um, and mine as well, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn, I would like to ask you, gentlemen. Of course, we're in the middle of the Pusher trilogy discussions what do you think is the most deserving of a criterion release of his films and he just doesn't have a huge filmography you know started from the mid 90s but you know there's some choices there uh what do you think is most deserving and why uh do you think it should be a criterion film and i'm going to start with walter i know he's chomping at the bit oh you better believe i am because the minute you you asked the system in the, in the twitter chat and i have Son, the praise of this movie so many times before. This is actually my favorite Nicholas Winding Refn movie by far. Um, more so than Drive, more so than Only God Forgives, more so than Neon Demon. And that's Bronson. I think hmm. Refn's uh, very uh, artfully done biopic with Tom Hardy at the helm. This is magic, this movie. Like... I sat through and I watched this and I, I immediately was like, I have to own this movie because this movie is amazing. Yeah, that's an, uh, that's an interesting pick because I think it works on several levels because uh, it, it's it's also was released you know before Tom Hardy became a, a household name essentially. Yeah, and I I, I think that you know, you have this you have the story being told of Bronson's life and then there's these I, I, my favorite, like these interludes where Tom Hardy's on a stage, like he's like doing like some sort of like one man show and he's in like different outfits and different makeups. Um, if, if you were going to, if, if you were to tell me, like, if this would not a criteria movie already, um, it definitely needs to be one. This movie is amazing. I cannot sing its praises enough. Hmm. That's a, that's a great pick. That was one of the early films for me, for him as well. I think I may may have seen this before drive um and i i know you know valhalla rising i'd seen right around that same time and i i'm with you i i think it's it may be his most fun film um really overall it does have a current blu-ray release that's still in print came out in 2010 so we may not see it for a little while but you never know we'll, i will have to track it down I, I believe i only have this the uh, standard dvd release but i will have this blu-ray as well <laughs> excellent it's 10 bucks Worth a purchase. Excellent. So uh, how about you, Hermano? What Refn film do you think deserves a Criterion release? Okay, well, I mean, the obvious choice would probably be Drive, but I'm going to not do the easy thing, and I'll go mm. with the one that I think would probably most catch uh, 
the attention of the Criterion. Uh, um, I'm going to go with Only God Forgives. And I remember when we reviewed it, um, I think we all sort of appreciated it more than uh, the masses. <laughs> I feel like it was getting a little bit uh, uh, taken apart by the critics, I think as well as audiences. I think they were very split on the film overall. But um, again, I think a lot of the Criterion films, what they typically go for is not like the most easily accessible films. Like they're going for films that have, you know, something to say, maybe a little bit artsy, maybe have something about them that stands out amongst other films of the type of film it is. Uh, and sure. I think that Only God Forgives kind of hits all those those check marks. Uh, it's more artsy than <laughs> Drive. And maybe on the level of something, I guess maybe the, maybe the closest film that it resembles to me is something like Valhalla Rising that he did, which is more of like kind of like a mood piece. Uh, but I think Only God Forgives is not quite <laughs> on the level of Valhalla Rising. I think Tim will... Uh, have hmm. maybe some words to say about that because <laughs> Tim not being a huge fan hmm. even though I was uh, but yeah I mean Only God Forgives you know I, I've been meaning to rewatch it I remember watching it a second time liking it more the second time and uh, I feel like it's one of those films that people gave it another chance that it would grow on them hmm. because it is kind of a challenging film to watch the first time because it's, it's sort of unconventional for the type of film it is it's very artsy uh, you know a lot of like slow motion just you know reflective shots <laughs> of like characters just kind of staring and, you know, pondering things and, you know, and it's, there's extreme violence in it, of course, but, right. um, you know, I, I just feel like it's just one of those films that I would typically see, you know, get the attention of, you know, something like Criterion. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where sometimes it's for them, it's a, a reappraisal of a film. Um, you know, and it's, it has, it does have a low cinema score and a fairly low audience score. So it's one that maybe there is a, a story to be told and, uh, it may be a nice commentary, uh, from, from Refn on the disc would be nice. So it is still in print as well on Blu-ray though. Uh, you can get it for a whopping $8. So we'll, <laughs> <laughs> Probably be waiting for a little while for that one, um, but yeah, the film it, it, it really good reviews on that Blu-ray. I, I I own it. I don't think I've seen it. I just saw it when it came out. So yeah, definitely do for a, a rewatch. How about you, Tim? So uh, I was thinking about uh, an earlier reference film, not as earlier as these pusher films, but something that came out a couple years later. And uh, it's it's one that stars John Turturro. Came out in two thousand and three. It's called Fear mm. X. Um, this is a movie that we discussed on the podcast for uh, a main main discussion, and I, I can't even remember or figure out which uh, episode number it was, but it was pretty early on. And I think even amongst us, it was uh, a bit middling response. You know, kind of like uh, a little befuddled. Maybe we're just coming off of the more recent reference films and and those uh, styles. Uh, you know, appreciating his style. Um, and uh, this was a bit of a departure than what we had become accustomed to at the time. Uh, and maybe you could even compare it to uh, these pusher films in, in terms of uh, the, the aesthetic. Uh, now, it's been a long time since I've seen it. I don't really remember much of it uh, other than maybe a couple of scenes uh, vaguely. Um, but I, I, I think it's one of those uh, things that Criterion would... Uh, lean into in terms of an earlier, underappreciated, underdiscussed, uh, lesser known film of a, you know, of a more well known filmmaker. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think uh, this would be uh, this would be up their alley. 
Yeah, that, I like the choice. It's uh, I think his third film um, and the, the first with at the time, you know, a pretty well-known actor carrying the film and John Turturro. So yeah, that's a it's a good pick. I, it's also it is out of print. Uh, there's no DVD available. I think I own an out of print DVD. Um, Although so you can uh, you can wa- you can watch it on Freevee, Pluto TV, and Tubi. Nice. So it is streaming. So yeah, check it out. And, or you could get it from your library. But yeah, that's a it's a good pick. That's that's uh, you know to your point, it's one that uh, they could champion. It's probably under many people's radar. So and it does hold. It's got a sixty one. Metacritic score, the audience score is about the same, a six, so yeah, due for reappraisal. Well, I didn't dig in too much into a what I think should be released, really. The, the, um, I think the reason this question came up, because I was kind of thinking about it myself, I'm just going to go with the, the easy one, which is I think uh, Criterion should do a Pusher Trilogy uh, mm-hmm. box set mm-hmm. you know, without giving too much away with what I think of part two. Uh, I mean, it's there's currently a DVD imprint. It's been been in print for a while. It does have some nice supplements. It's got a commentary for two and three, but I'd love to hear a commentary from Refn about you know how he came to his first film, which is you know Pusher One. Um, so I I would love to see them just put a you know nice slip slipcover box set together on this because again this is where he he got a start and he made a couple other movies and he went back to it with two and three. So I would say that would be my pick. I'd also, it's been too long since I've seen it. Um, I think I'm going to actually rewatch it tonight, but the one I'd be most excited uh, for the supplements would be Valhalla Rising, I think. So Got a, especially with the Northman coming out this year, I heard some people, you know, bringing this film up again with the Northman out. So I would like to, you know, reappraise that from Criterion. So, well, thanks gents. I just, I, I figured to, I close this out with a quick little rundown of some, exciting titles uh to to mention um there is a there's a blu-ray upgrade that just came out in in april of walker um the great film from alex cox if you haven't seen it there's a, a 4k re-release of le cirque rouge which is the jean-pierre melville film uh that one had, was out of print for a while it is for my money might be the best heist movie um it's at I don't know. I mean, it's longer, but it, it is just a, a wonderful, wonderful film. Um, there's also the the Last Waltz uh, from Criterion. So they're continuing a little Martin Scorsese uh, binge and uh, releasing that one. And for uh, other new releases, I think w- probably the most exciting for me is a 4K release of Wilder's Double Indemnity uh, just came out this week. That is Probably, for my money, my favorite uh, all-time film noir. I've only seen it once, so I can't wait to see it again. It's a nice 4K release. So if you haven't seen that, uh, definitely check out Double Indemnity when you're in the mood for some black and white. And just to mention a couple things coming out soon, we have uh, they're releasing Shaft in July from Gordon Parks. Um, something that I know excites Tim, and I think this is already on your radar, but in June is uh, The Worst Person in the World oh, from Jochen yes. Trier. Oh, yes. So, oh, and I think I said uh, yeah, June for Shaft, not July. Uh, Pink Flamingos at the end of June, so a really big month. Um, the John Waters, his his third film, I think it is. Um, that'll be a lot of fun to to see. 
And I mean, the biggest one that is, I, I don't know how much of a surprise it is, but Criterion's going to start getting some big films. Raging Bull is coming in July. Um, that's definitely the biggest Scorsese film that they've released. That's a 4K Blu-ray combo um, that they're putting out. So that's very cool. And there's a, a couple others, Drive My Car, um, which was big in 2021. Excellent film coming in July. And a, a little one I just wanted to champion um, very early. I think it might actually be their second film, The Safdie Brothers, a film coming out in August called Daddy Long Legs is excellent. Um, it's been out of print for a while on DVD, hard to find. And uh, I really want to champion that one. So check out Daddy Long Legs in August. So some good stuff there. Hope folks uh, can check it out soon. And that's Criterion 101. I'm giving you a night call to tell you how I feel. I want to drive you through the night. He brings the popcorn. She brings the roses. <sighs> Subject Cinema, a tasty new film topic each week with a side order of film reviews. Yum. T.C. Kirkham. But I'm Jing. Kim Brown. What? Over half a million listeners, and you could be the next one. Subjectcinema.com. Real movies for real people. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Okay, let's talk about Pusher 2. It's uh, Mr. Kuzmin this evening. All right. It's Bram Chipsen. Kuzmin, what's up? What's up? What's up? What's the but Tony is released from prison again. This time he has his mind set on changing his broken down life, but that is easier said than done. The director, Nicholas Winding Refn, the actors, Mads, Mickelson, Leif, Sylvester, and Sjöjensin, uh, and others. 
Uh, Mark, uh, what did you think of the second entry into his trilogy? Well, this is the second time I, I've seen everything except for his his newest TV show, uh, Too Old to Die Young, which I'm planning to rectify this year. And the trouble is I've seen everything, but I, you know, having only seen it once, I didn't remember it a lot. And I remembered enjoying these films quite a bit. I did go back and rewatch Pusher One, of course, listen to your episode about that and uh, did enjoy it. I, I think I had a little bit of um, the same kind of reaction to it that Hermano did in that I, I don't feel like I quite liked it as much, you know, rewatching it as I did the first time. Uh, to me, I think it's just the I, I really just appreciated the 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 reference aesthetic and what he was trying to do in that film for um you know after seeing a couple of uh, other films and it, it got me excited for the trilogy uh but i i do really like how um you know reffin overall he, I, I love his his aggressive soundtracks you know he uses a lot of heavy guitar heavy synth heavy drums and it's really it's sometimes in your face. Sometimes it's just you know, like punctuation. Uh, I thought in, you know, in one they they really good use of a Rob Zombie song in a uh, during a, a police chase, a foot chase, um, you know, which is again, you don't see that often. Usually you'd see it at like a car chase. So I thought that was that was great. And he doesn't you know, he doesn't Ruffman doesn't shy away from the violence and the brutalness of it all, um, which I, I think will keep him on the the, the fringes a bit. Uh, but that's exactly where we like him on the fringes. And I, and you guys had mentioned, I mean, I do consider him uh, an art house filmmaker of sorts as well. You know, Hermano mentioned that with uh, only God forgive. So I, I did really, I, I liked pusher one quite a bit. I'd, I'd give it probably a B to B plus and pusher two. I think it uh, pushes it that much farther uh, pun intended. Mm -hmm. uh, it really, it really has a, a great opening um, I, I didn't actually realize who the, uh, who he was speaking to at the time, but, um, about, um, you know, if you want people wanting the part of the cut and, uh, getting burned, uh, literally, I think the, the, the opening credits is great. I know, uh, Walter had alluded to that. You kind of get the, um, the same as the first film with the, the loud music and the dark over the eyes. I think it kind of gives you, you know, keeps you guessing at the outset as to um what's going on with the the characters and i i think this film had a bit more polish uh than pusher one but it still has the grit as well uh and the grain the first the first film was more grainy this one a little bit less so but um still you know in high definition you know what seven years seven eight years later uh is gritty uh, but i i think the this is just a, a deeper film um that we can get into probably a little bit more in spoilers with the the character of tony you know the the first one is about this um small time pusher and um tony of course is a character in the the first film and this tells his story a, a little bit later and there are some things that come up as far as um the you know paternity issues on both sides uh, his father and a and there's a, a child involved um a you know a, a half brother um just many more kind of family dynamics i think come into play um in this film and i i think the you know up until um the end i i think the the, the end is really kind of a knockout and there's a, a real knockout uh scene there as well um i will say you know before spoilers i i think there 
it really does kind of point to something that um, is is going to happen pretty strongly. Um, and the which is which is fine. I don't think that's necessarily a, a knock on the film. That may be uh, actually a, a a strength of it. Um, and you know, they like I said, the the violence there isn't a, a lot of it, but what is there is handled as it should be. Uh, it's gross and uh, and rough. So I, I think from um, and Mads Mikkelsen. I mean, the the guy is. Uh, I I think this is probably the film that. Um, I mean, he, he's, he's good in pusher one, but of course he shines absolutely, uh, in this film as a, someone who is just looking for, uh, respect from those around him. So uh, yeah, I'm definitely a fan. I'm curious to hear what you guys thought. Uh, Hermano, uh, in the first film uh, during that discussion, you had mentioned how the main character of Frank was impossible to root for because he's just doing a bunch of bad things and and there's nobody else to really pull for either but does this movie change that for you with the main character it did um i remembered liking like i said last week i remembered liking this one the most uh and it stood true (laughs) i i remember the least about the next one so i'm most interested in reviewing revisiting that one but uh few reasons why I think this one is much stronger. Um, one, the character of Mads Mikkelsen is far more compelling. The story in this film that and what he's going through uh, is far more compelling than I think anything Frank did in the first film, where there's nothing, like you said, there's nothing to really root for in Frank. And even though, like, Tony is not exactly a great guy, uh, there's something compelling about his introspection and his interactions with his dad. Um, and you just, you can really, I think it's all due to Mads Mikkelsen's performance, but you could just really get the sense that this has been his entire life. These interactions is like, you know, he's just trying to get his father to acknowledge him, to, to love him, to just be a dad to him. And, you know, he's, he just keeps basically running up against the brick wall. Um, but again, the Mads Mikkelsen character is also doing some pretty despicable things in the film. But there's that other element to him, which I, I don't think the Frank character had necessarily in the first film. Um, also, expanding on the Tony character, where essentially he's a sidekick character in the first film and is gone relatively quickly in that first film. Like, giving him his entire own film, I think, was a pretty good choice uh, to kind of stay in this universe and follow that character, um, <laughs> learn a little bit more about him. And uh, I just, I liked his story essentially. Like like Mark said, there's this like this paternity aspect to it. Um, it really kind of adds weight to his own issues that he's dealing with his own father, uh, whether or not, you know, he would be a good parent <laughs> uh, looking at all the people around him and how they're really not good parents or would probably make good parents. And um, I think that's the core theme of the film. And I think it, it knocks it out, especially with, like Mark said, with the the final scene, I think is like incredible and um, really made me want more, even though, you know, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> we don't really get more. There's no real conclusion, but you could assume what is likely to happen, you know, but who knows, you know, maybe he's going to, you know, without going into spoilers and stuff like make better of it than you know his father did with him so yeah just on every level i i I really appreciated uh this one 
from the Mads Mikkelsen stuff to the side characters, I thought they were all stronger than the the first film. Uh, Wally, what did you think of this sequel? Uh, so this sequel highlights something that I don't, it, it, until you watch this, you don't realize that you don't really see it in the first one. You never really see Tony committing any sort of major crime hmm. well, in I, the first movie. I mean, other than stealing cars? Yeah, but like that's petty theft. Okay. You, know I mean? um, you never see him get like, like, um, like what, what uh, Frank does to him. Or, you know, him in getting involved in anybody getting murdered. You know what sure. I mean? Uh, until he hits, uh, until the third act. You know what I mean? Um, and this movie also, knowing that this is a trilogy, makes me feel like when you're driving or, you know, when you see like a car being driven at like high speeds, like a sports car. So, pressure one, you're in the, you know, you're getting the car up to speed and then you let off the gas a little bit to downshift to get into that final gear to really race it up. So I'm wondering what's going to happen in Pusher 3 because that's what this feels like. This feels like the downshift a little bit because it's not as intense a movie as the first one. Hmm. Um, it's a character study about Tony. You know what I mean? And like, like y'all have set out so far in his search for respect, his his looking he's still looking for his place in the world like he, i think he's beginning to come to terms with that he's not very good at crime <laughs> you know what i mean hmm. he's not he's not a good criminal he's not hardened you know what i mean um like the other people that he encounters you know he's the one that's that uh is still cracking jokes even in the face of like kind of even in the face of of, of danger because he doesn't really know any better you know um like the, like the scene when milo comes in and uh, Kurt's in the bathroom and he pretends to sound like a cop. Right. And, you know, that triggers Kurt to flushing the flushing the drugs. And he's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But overall, like, Tony is is looking for something. He's, you know, he's, he's out there reaching. He's, he, for the best way I can put it, he's looking for someone to love him. He tries to play it off like he doesn't care, but Mads Mikkelsen's like facial acting and his like body language throughout the movie shows that he clearly does. You know, um, whenever you know Charlotte or Gree say something to him or like cut him down, like you, he his facial expression shows that it's it gets to him. You know what I mean? And then he'll say something to try to you know blow it off, like he'll fire back an insult and walk away. So I think this is a really cool like study on a a black sheep of what is normally black sheep you know what i mean yeah. like he's you have these these other hardened criminals and he's kind of like the outcast from them right because right. and it's it also also that he's i'm not maybe it's because of the baseball bat damage <laughs> or the fact that he's just not really good at crime like he leaves prison with a $500 debt Right. And even if you worked at McDonald's, you could get a you could pay off your five hundred dollar debt in a month. Yeah, you know what I mean, it wouldn't take much for you to do something to get five hundred bucks. And you never see him really actively. It's like almost it's almost like a uh, you know, a MacGuffin of sorts, because you never see him actively trying to pay this debt off um, throughout the, throughout this movie. Whereas in the the first Pusher movie, yep. it's all about paying that debt off. Right. 
You know, Frank is, is, is frantically trying to pull these different, you know, people in to try to get the money to be able to pay the dealers for this product that he lost. And in this, it's, 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 it's a non-issue. Like it's, it's, it's nothing. Well, you know I mean? well, it's it's interesting because you know we see that Tony is even more of a failure than Frank from the first film, and Tony makes even dumber decisions than he does, and it's it's really kind of amazing to watch him fail over and over and over again. You know, so he fails so much that, as you guys have said, he loses you know what little respect he had from his father, and to see that respect wane is is kind of sad, even though. You know, Tony's father is a is a bad guy, an evil guy, and and obviously only cares about himself. You see that in every kind of interaction that he has uh, with Tony, and and that this this selfishness uh, by Tony's father is is um, it's it's projected in a fit of rage at a later scene. We'll we'll get to that in spoilers, and it's just uh, it's just really interesting how that scene plays out. Um, yeah, the more I sit with this movie, the more I like it. You know, at first I kind of thought it was on the same level as the first film, but the like I said, the more I sat with it, the more it's it's you know simmered in my mind. I was like, this is this is a lot more interesting because, as you guys have said, it's a good character study of Tony, and you get to see you know who he is and why he is <laughs> who he is. Um, yeah. You know, and I like how, you know, Andrew from uh, our discussion last week had had mentioned uh, like sexual ambiguity here uh, with the characters. And and I think it kind of rears its head here again, but mm, not yeah. as not as much. I think there's a lot more in regards to impotence, uh, especially with Tony. And you see that played out literally in a, in an early segment with him with two sex workers and his inability to get aroused in their presence. And, and it's something that, you know, that, you know, his impotence shows throughout the rest of the movie, you know, he, he's unable to be successful in terms of crimes or deals or anything like that, especially with, uh, his buddy Kurt there. Um, you know, and it, it's, it's a combination of his own, uh, inabilities as well as the you know the lack of I don't know uh, you know wherewithal f- uh, from his his friends or his uh, the people he's he's committing these crimes with um, and uh, yeah you know I, I it's I, I think it's still similar in tone and subject matter of the first film because it, it does follow like this day to day life with the highs and lows of these of these people. So I love how it goes from like this high of this real thrilling automotive dealership heist, you know, where where and Tony is praised for his coolness under pressure, and then it just goes down to Tony being part of this botched drug deal and getting the blame by by Kurt, uh, and Kurt's even dumber than Tony is at times, you know. It's it's a, it's a pretty wild ride. Um, so yeah, no, I I I like this film uh, a bit better than the, than the first one. Uh, anything else to add, Mark? Yeah, I guess I I did want to mention something that I I do really appreciate appreciate about one I, I I don't know if it's opposed to two, but I like how the the camera is it's really all close up and medium shots mm-hmm. uh, in the first film, and it seems to be entirely handheld, uh, which really just gives the the, the whole thing just gives it a propulsive energy and is claustrophobic uh, as well. And I, I think, you know, Walter was kind of alluding to that, that maybe the first film has even more energy 
um, than this film. And this one, in in some ways, does kind of slow down and gives you more um, of these these characters and kind of opens up this life some more, you know, because you have the the different uh, family members that come into play. And of course there's, um, yeah, I mean, you know, paternity is a concern. There's more, I think more, yeah, more women in this film, uh, which is a, a positive thing as well. Although, you know, the, they all seem to have their own issues uh, themselves. And, but I, I do think that like we were saying, you can kind of, um, feel more for Tony, even though he's always doing drugs, you know, he's always doing his, getting his Coke fix. I mean, there's even one scene where he's just wiping the, the dope onto a cereal, uh, from the, uh, from the night before. So you, you, you question his, um, his decisions, but you also, I, I think feel even more for him than, um, you know, than for, for Frank, um, because he's, you know, the it's, it's on the back of his head, you know, he just wants, um, he wants to give respect as well, uh, to others. And he is looking for, uh, respect for himself. I, uh, Hermano were, was there anything about the style of this movie that stuck out to you in regards in maybe comparison to the first film? Yeah, I thought it was like Mark said already, I thought it was a little bit more polished though. I think he was also trying to uh, maintain a consistent look to the original uh, kind of, you could notice it in a lot of the daytime scenes. Some of them were really grainy. Uh, I'm assuming this was shot on film. Um, it just kind of looked like that, but uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I definitely thought they had more of a budget. I don't know if that's true or not, but like, I remember the first film just feeling like it was really well lit. Like they, it felt really uh, low budget and like guerrilla style uh, when I initially watched it. Uh, this one felt a um, a little bit like they had actual lighting and <laughs> uh, you know I just thought overall too like the performances in it in both films are like night and day. Like I thought in the first one it felt like uh, kind of a uh, you know a mishmash of like decent acting to like mediocre. Uh, and I'd, I'd say in this one I thought everyone was pretty solid. I mean again with with the language barrier, it's always kind of really hard to tell if they're really putting in a good performance or not. But um, I thought like the, um, you know, Mads Mikkelsen, of course, knocking out of the park. I think his father was really, uh, I don't know the actor's name, but that was a really good performance there as well. Um, even the side characters, the ones that, you know, don't have a ton of screen time, but they make the most of it. Like the great names in this film, by the way, <laughs> like yeah. the gangster names, like Kurt the Cunt. <laughs> <Pretty good. laughs> um but we haven't asked the most important question. What's that? How do we all feel about bikini briefs? Bikini briefs. Oh, well, it looks good on Mads. I can tell you that. Not a fan. Yeah. Not a fan. Nope. Can't do Tell it. Them off, then. More power to you. Yeah. Yep. Look, yep, we'll, uh, Mad, we'll Mads, Mads got the body, so he, he can do whatever he wants. Um, I, yeah, no, as, as far as the style, I, I, I think that, his his later style that we're more familiar with kind of peeks its head out a little bit. You know, there's some slow motion that, uh, you know, the, the interior shots is a lot of very bright colored scenes, whether it's greens or reds or maybe some blues as well. And, you know, there's even the score is a little Cliff Martinez like at times. Uh, For sure. yeah. So, uh, Wally, what did you think of that? So I was going to point that out that the, I did notice a lot of um, tinting in this movie. And I can't, I'm still on the fence as to what it sort of means in terms of story and, or maybe it's just 
Redfin experimenting for for later stuff that he wants to put in his back pocket. Because initially, like when I look back on it, it felt that whenever he's doing something or in a place where he's not supposed to be, the lighting is red or it's got mm. a red tinge to it. Yeah, and I mean, there's the there's the one scene, of course, late where it's very red and we're expecting violence. Um, yeah. You know, it certainly, you know, sets that up. But then the following scene, it's where he's supposed to be and the lighting is green. But then yeah, there's, just, also just... Other, there's also there's also recurrences of that red green um, thing as well, because there's, you know, there's when he's in the bathroom, it's it's heavily lit green in some scenes, but heavily lit red in others. So, Wally, I looked it up for you. So red in cinema, traditionally, red has been associated with intense and uncontrollable feelings, love and romantic passion, violence, danger, rage or ambition for power. So that's what red is. As far as like green, let's see, what do they say here? Depends a lot on the context, although the quickest association you will think of is that of nature, forests, idyllic landscapes. It is often also associated with corruption and the dangerous and sinister. I was gonna say money. So, you know. Yeah, yeah you I can see those two things. Uh, at least some of that stuff, you know, went along with the film. Uh, so, is there anything else to mention before we get into spoilers? Let's do some spoilers. I think we're good. Uh, so, this uh, scene I was uh, alluding to earlier is this um, crime of passion, essentially, by. Mads Mikkelsen's after he is verbally and physically uh, assaulted by his father after failing to act on one of his orders. And uh, that scene, I think, I think shows some of Mads's uh, best acting in, in these two films because of the way he's reacting to that. There's this torment and sadness in his eyes, you know, this, these years of trauma built up to this moment and this, the crime of passion is, is stabbing him over yeah. and over and over again. And it's, it's really, I think a, a pretty powerful scene. Mark, what did you think? Yeah, I, I, um, you know, I, I took it in twice, frankly, not, not for the violence, but for the power of it. Um, and that's one of the things I just I, I love the way that Ruffin handles violence uh, because he he really depicts it as it, as as what it should be. It's not quick. Um, it's bloody. You know, we see the the bloody scene in uh, Pusher One as well, um, and it's just it's brutal. I mean, you know, he's taking out his father, and that's the scene that I felt like they were setting up the entire time um, because you know Dad is is cutting him down like most of the other characters cut him down as well. Uh, and it just hits a boiling point where he's, he's slapping him and it's just absolutely, I mean, I think it's a screwdriver that he's stabbing him with. Right. It's just absolutely brutal. And he just sits there. Um, you know, they, they linger on it for a few seconds afterwards. Um, so he can, you know, just take in, um, what he's done. So that's, it's, it's a, it's a, punctuation that i i think um you know i think of drive as a, a scene like that as well um that is um in, in some ways you know it's it's coming um and maybe in some of his other films they're you know kind of um more more of a surprise um but i i like the way that he doesn't shy away from the violence uh, hermano yeah that was a powerful scene like you guys already said it was definitely like building up towards it all this animosity between him and his dad it really starts off kind of small you know when he initially gets out of jail it starts off kind of like a almost awkward in right. a way that he's even showing up there 
And slowly you get the sense that, you know, they have a really kind of, you know, initially it, it really seems like, you know, it's just a dad that's fed up with his, you know, his screw up son. And then slowly it's revealed more that, you know, he's just a kind of a dickhead dad. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's not necessarily completely, you know, Mads Mickelson's fault or Tony's fault, I should say. Um, but, you know, again, it's it's sort of like both of them. Like they're just kind of like oil and vinegar. Um, and it just becomes more about Mads just really trying to reach out constantly and just being shut down at every turn. Uh, and it just building and building and building until that, you know, that crescendo at the end with finally having had enough. I think especially to the scene in the car where, you know, a father asking a son to, to pull something like that off. It's just, I think it all just kind of hits him. Like, what am I even doing? My dad, like the only way I'm going to get my dad's love or respect is if I murder his wife or his ex-wife or whatever. Right. Like, I just can't even imagine being put in that position and being like, this is, look at the lengths I have to go to to even get acknowledged by my father is like, you know, and who knows how long that'll even last, right? Like, he might be like cool with them for like, oh, thanks so much for helping me out by murdering my ex-wife. But who knows, like tomorrow, what, what tomorrow will bring? Will he still be like all on that high or is he going to like go right back to berating me and talking shit about my own mother and, and things like that. So, uh, yeah, it was just really strong there. And, you know, leading into that final scene with, you know, um, ultimately what he, you know, what he does at the end there with like deciding to take his son or presumably his son and just kind of taking off like that and just all that other stuff lingering too. not, not just that he's taking his son and like, what the hell is he even thinking? Like this dude literally has pocket change and it's taking a baby away from, you know, uh, potentially a more, I mean, a more stable environment, I guess, uh, for, you know, uh, compared to him. But, you know, the idea that, you know, they witnessed him with the bloody hand, he's probably going to be clearly, you know, um, the first person everyone's going to accuse of, you know, that murder. So he's got kind of a lot on his plate. And, you know, to do that as well is kind of insane. Yeah. What about you, Ollie? So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of setup, you know, like you said, leading into this, you have like their initial meeting, and then the the next emotional hit comes when he finds out his mom's dead. He was like, and she died while he was like locked up. Right. Um. So like living this life, like he missed out on like on seemingly what appears to be like the person that he was closest to. Because I don't believe I don't recall you ever seeing his mom in the first one. You see no. Frank's mom, right? But I don't, you don't see Tony's mom. Yeah. Um, right. And then at the wedding, he gets disowned. Yeah, that that's in the, front of all those people. That is a harsh takedown right there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that happens, and at that point, like he's like you just see like the look in his like the look on on Matt Nicholson's face, like I guess that's it then. Yeah, he's he's you know I mean? completely emasculated in front of a, everybody he knows. Yep, and then he ends up uh, taking that one last shot. Like I'm gonna give it one one, one more shot, and when when his dad says, you know, basically tells him to go fuck himself, he's like, I've had enough of your shit. And at that point, like, puts him down. You know what I mean? Yep. And so now, like, he's, at that point, he's like, well, you can't hurt me anymore, you're dead. You know what I mean? And then, you know, after that, now he's got that, he's got that realization of, like, now what do I do? And then there's that, that moment where it kind of, I guess, to, for lack of a better word, clicks with him, where he sees how Charlotte treats the baby yeah. mirrors like how his dad treats him. 
Yeah. And he's like, now nah, we're not doing that. And so that's when he decides to, you know, steal all whatever money they have. I have no, I have no idea if that's pocket change or if that's good money. I have no idea. Right. I have no Dutch money. <laughs> but, you know, gets on the bus and starts leaving. Gets starts getting out of there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then again, that scene's lit with green. Hmm. So is that a, you know, a rebirth kind of scene? Like, we're gonna, are we seeing, like, the next evolution in Tony? Are we going to see him in the third movie? I kind of hope not because I like to think that he gets away and... Uh, yeah, it, it's it's yeah. the a similar on things. It, it's a similar tone of ending as as the first film as to like you're like what happens next? Where the hell does this character go from here? Type of ending. Yeah, uh, yeah, I like it. Yep. I like it a lot. Yep. Uh, Mark, any last things before we get into grades? Yeah, I was just going to mention that the shot that I love so much is um, is part of that scene. There's the wonderful shot of both at the back of their heads, you know, his and the the babies, and the, they look almost exactly the same, except the baby has a little bit of hair, and you see the respect on the back of, uh, hmm. you know, Tony's Tony's head. Um, so it's you know, and, and the fact that he he doesn't know if that's his son or not, he hasn't gotten a paternity test, but he's still going to try to make something better for this child you know it's it's um he's he's been beaten on uh for so so much of his life and he's going to do something better and the you know the final shot is of course the back of his head again just the the respect uh tattoo so i yeah i i really think the those two punctuation points are the the items you know those two scenes the violent scene and the ending scene are the things that really make this come together uh, for me as the, um, you know, the better of the two films. Although I do really appreciate uh, Pusher One. Uh, all right, let's get into grades, Mark. So I'm, I'm going to go, um, I'm, I'm waffling between, you know, BB plus for Pusher One. I'm waffling between an A minus B plus for this. I, I do think it is one of his best films. Um, so I'm going to go with uh, an A minus. Uh, yeah, I'm right there with you. A minus. I, I think I was originally at a B plus, which might have been my same rating as as last week. Uh, but I, I I do find it to be a, a better film uh, as the longer I've sat with it. And uh, I'm gonna give it an A minus. Uh, Wally. I, another point I wanted to make before I give my grade is in the first Pusher movie, you never get a clear shot of the back of Tony's head. Interesting. Clearly, hmm. he has a tattoo on the back of his head, but they never really show it. Like, the way it's lit, it's, like, hidden in shadows. And in this one, you see it a lot. Yes. Hmm. And so, it's an A-. minus. Yeah. Hermano? Uh, I think oh, this, this movie's the... Uh, I, think I, gave, I think I gave Pusher 1 a B plus, and this is this is definitely the next step up. Uh, this is an A-. minus. Yep. Hermano? Same as the rest of you guys. A-. minus. Uh, all right, that does it for this episode of the First Time Watchers Podcast. Donate via patreon.com slash first time watchers or buy stuff at zazzle.com slash first time watchers. Talk to us on Twitter at one ST time watchers on Twitter. Or write to us at our email, firsttimewatchers at gmail.com. Download our episodes in Apple Podcasts and Stitcher because we love feedback. Uh, if you have any suggestions of movies for us to watch, please send a tweet or an email. Speaking of suggestions, let's recommend a movie. Mark. I have one. Uh, it's another film involving a bad dad and some interesting baby happenings. It is Julian Donkey Boy. Oh, I thought I... you were going to say a Serbia film. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, no, no, not, no. Close, but... <laughs> uh, this uh, this one's by Harmony Kareen. I don't know if any folks have seen it. Hmm. Uh, Ewan Bremmer, uh, the, uh, Chloe Savigny and Werner Herzog, uh, playing said bad dad. Hmm. Um, it's, 
the synopsis is a portrait of the effects of schizophrenia on a family life is the central focus. Um, he directed this uh, as his uncle, Harmony Corrine, that is, uh, had schizophrenia. So I, I think it was, a, you know, he had certainly some insight, and I'm sure he did some research into it as well. Um, it's super grainy. It's a really interesting way this was made. It's the first American film uh, to be made as part of the that Danish movement, uh, Dogma 95, uh, folks may be mm -hmm. familiar with. Um, it was actually shot in New York on mini DV tape, and then it was transferred, um, that tape, to 16 millimeter film and then blown up again into 35 millimeter film for the master print. So it, it really, it's just extremely grainy, um, even distorted. But I, I think the, the video kind of works for this distorted life <laughs> these people are, are, are living. So uh, I, I think it might be actually in considering it my, my favorite uh, Korean film. It's not currently streaming. It is out of print, but you couldn't get it from Netflix DVD. Netflix, anyone? Netflix DVD, you guys know what that is? Oh, sure, I've heard of well, it. Well, I used to have that. <laughs> or get it from your library. Um, you know, it, but yeah, DVDs out of print, so you, but you can you could buy it for 20 bucks if you want. But uh, yeah, Julian Donkey Boy, recommended. Uh, I will recommend another Mads Mikkelsen film. This is a film that was released in 2012, uh, directed by Thomas Vinterberg. It is called The Hunt. A teacher lives a lonely life, all the while struggling over his son's custody. His life slowly gets better as he finds love and receives good news from his son, but his new luck is about to be brutally shattered by an innocent little lie. And that lie is something that uh, spreads throughout the town and uh, causes him to become an outcast. And um, it's been a while since I've seen this film, but I remember it being probably one of the better films of 2012 and uh, certainly... One of Mads Mikkelsen's best performances, uh, considering uh, this little lie and how devastating it is to his reputation. Uh, and uh, yeah, I I would I would recommend uh, The Hunt. It's probably a movie I have to revisit, uh, and it would probably hold up just as well. Um, Wally, yeah, Wally. All right, so we got Mark Kearney on the show, so I'm thinking that this could be something that would be in the flavor of Criterion. And I'm also going to lighten the mood a little bit with my recommendation. Um, and I think we reviewed this back in 2016. It was going back a while. Um, and this also ties into the, the theme of family and fitting in. And this is Jacques Tati's Monocle. Monsieur hmm. um, Hulot visits a technology-driven world of his sister, brother-in-law, and nephew, but can't quite fit into the surroundings. There is a scene in here that never ceases to crack me up of him sneaking around at night and the lights coming on in the house and the house is kind of a face. Yep. It is hilarious. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it slays me every time. And I think Jacques Tati's, um, he's, I want, I still want to, when I eventually get the disposable funds to do, I really want to buy the criterion box set of all of his films so I can have them all uh, in my greedy little hands. Uh, because I just fell in love with his his comedic styling and how his movies are put together, so it's absolutely monocle. It, it's it's not fair that our first film of his that we saw was Playtime, and that none of his uh, others have lived up to that. <laughs> hmm. I mean, that is that is that is like the peak. But I I yeah. still absolutely love that movie. Uh, Hermano, <laughs> uh, all right, I'm going to be doing a first. I'm not going to recommend a movie or a TV show. 
I'm going to recommend anyone with uh, ties to religion. Uh, please pray for the Celtics <laughs> to win the uh, NBA Finals. Go watch the game tomorrow night. We're recording this on uh, June 1st, 2022. Game one is June 2nd. Come on, Celtics. I like it. All right. Good recommendation. Mm. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure, as always. You guys are awesome and you know that and i really uh glad you guys are gonna finish up the or you're digging into the pusher trilogy i hope you like part three yeah we'll see i uh, look forward to later in the year next uh next time you join us will be uh next season uh, not sure what it is but i'm sure it'll be good uh where can people find you online i'm on the interwebs here and there letterbox at mark herney h-u-r-n-e uh, twitter the same all right, stay tuned for our next episode. Mark already spoiled it. We'll be finishing off this trilogy with Pusher 3. And that's the first time watchers podcast because we like to watch. nice and early what you're nice and early you broke up a little bit there hope uh, that doesn't mean a sign of things to come oh god <laughs> oh god oh no not us having uh, technical issues no never <clears throat> yeah i'm on early because uh we just finished playing like some some uno with the family oh that's fun yeah we played uh you ever played uno flip flip no i've never heard of that it basically both sides of the cards have uh, uh, numbers, but the you know it, one side has the standard Uno side, and then the other side has like this new like modified Uno, which is much more treacherous because <laughs> there's like some stuff on it like plus fives. Um, there's one where you have to keep picking up until you get a certain color, so it can really fill up your hand really quick. <laughs> So it's pretty deadly, but uh, wow. you know you have to get a card that uh, makes you flip the deck. Okay. And the the sides on the other, the colors on the other side are different colors, so you don't get confused with uh, the typical red, blue, green, yellow. It's like cyan, magenta, purple, and pink, I think. Interesting. So or orange, I mean, yeah. So yeah, it's 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 different. You know, if you want a little bit of a twist to the standard Uno game, it's not too bad. That's cool. How are our boys doing, the Celtics? Uh, oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I tell you, the, the the end of that game seven really freaked me the hell out. I'm so glad I didn't watch it. I would have been so stressed. Oh, God. I don't need that anymore, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, they I always do two game sevens. Dude, I was watching this game, and, I, and there were so many times where I literally said to Shannon, I'm like, I, 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 this is when I hate being a sports fan, being invested in a team. 
They should, we should literally attach ourselves to like heart monitors when we're watching the Celtics play <laughs> game seven. <laughs> Heartbeat hitting at like 180. <laughs> yeah. uh, I got to say, I don't think that I give them much of a chance against the Warriors. Really? You don't think they match up good? Like they're a good offensive team against a good defensive team? Well, they're, these are the, the number one and two defenses in the league. Oh, the Warriors are good defensively as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought they were mostly offense. Uh, no, uh, Clay Thompson is an excellent defender, and uh, Draymond Green is, is their Marcus Smart. And, yeah. and uh, yeah, Curry is kind of underrated defensively. He's not the best, but uh, they, they got everybody else around him uh, makes up for it. So, yeah. I don't know, man. I, they, their experience is, is second to none, you know? And yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I hate the way the Celtics bleed out the the shot clock uh especially at the end of the games i hate it so yeah i i think the the warriors uh can can uh pick that apart so were the warriors number one in the west no they were number four i believe and the celtics uh, were what in the east number two 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 that's right yeah eh, we'll uh, see i know that doesn't that doesn't say much but <laughs> we'll see 